Well, good morning. I apologize because here I am going back to my old way of just recording on the phone. I'm just going to give this... I mean, I had such a hard time uploading the last one when I recorded it uh, separate. So I'm just going to write to the phone. It's technically just a voice memo um, as I'm technically getting darn close to uh, to putting all this together. So long story short, um, beginning of essentially the beginning of this year, um, I was learning how to read and write. And what I didn't realize as a dyslexic and a traumatized individual with an auto-inflammatory disease and complex trauma or developmental trauma. So having spent the last geez, years healing that, didn't realize it only just begun because uh, as uh, Bessel van der Kolt's, uh, I believe, if I'm going to quote him loosely, um, developmental issues or learning disabilities are common. Um, to uh, overcome those disabilities or whatever you want to call them, um, roadblocks or what, you have to also deal with your trauma. But what I didn't realize is it's not just learning how to read and write and all that jazz. It's actually learning how to internalize that and, and actually, um, I guess, uh, process it, right? And how can you reprocess your traumas? if you can't process. So, I mean, as you can maybe tell, I read a lot of books in my day, but it wasn't until I started to learn how to reprocess this stuff that I was no longer essentially regurgitating. I was actually uh, putting things together. So as an example, currently working on this dual idea, I've mentioned it before, that uh, psychedelics, mind revealing, is no different than jhana, mind training, or mind revealing, or the truth of revealing. Upadana, upakara, from the yogacara, this idea that the self is just something we use. Like I've said, if you step in some mud and you use a stick that you find on the, the ground to clean the mud off your shoe... That stick is not all of a sudden the mud-cleaning stick. It's just something that was about and you used, similar to the self. Right? So I talk about um, that any experience, be it a vision quest or um, a sweat lodge, uh, and lo and behold, as I'm trying to hammer this idea out, because what I wanted to do was, again, talk about that um, psychedelics are helpful, but they just give you a glimpse into what you can do. If you're lucky, and this is where this microdosing comes in, if you're lucky enough to take uh, a large enough dose initially or have some sort of out-of-self experience. So I'm going to trademark this, this term. So follow me here. People tend to talk about an ego death or a religious experience in the same sort of context. We look at Jung, who talked about archaic men using these uh, metaphysical ideas or archetypes to explain something that we couldn't understand, right? The cause and effect, instead of just an understanding. I'll equate that to Wicca. Wicca being invented in the 50s by a man who, yes, was exposed in Borneo to some traditional um, beliefs, but also heavily influenced by Buddhism. 
and Rosicrucianism, which again has a strong uh, connection to these same teachings that we're talking about. What equanimity or being outside of self or an understanding that you're not the center of the universe. And lo and behold, um, yesterday, uh, just looking at a, a, a YouTube channel, he does a lot of interviews, um, Kurt Jungenmeyer or something like that, I can't remember, neither here nor there. And he was going to read somebody's writings, which had me somewhat interested. It was about Taoism and God being... But it was, it was a little boring, I'll be honest. But what I found interesting is he said he was one that he wanted to interview, but he'd passed, so he was going to read some of his work. But he mentioned another uh, gentleman, Douglas Hostetter. Hostetter. Pardon me if I mispronounce it. I found it hilarious because you know that I used Friston's free energy to explain the predictive engine. I found it even funnier that when I looked up Douglas Hofstadter, one of the first comments that I read in his uh, one of his videos, he was giving a speech explaining his idea of um, uh, weird spirals. I can't remember exactly how he explains it, but just we're in some sort of a, a feedback loop where we think we're progressing, but in the end we're not. Uh, we're just uh, spinning our wheels. But one of the comments was talking about, he's mentioning this, that, and the other thing, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you know, agency, the nature of self. But this comment, the gentleman says um, that he missed the point of, um, I think he might have missed resiliency, but it might have been in there. Um, he missed the point of um, the predictive engine idea, right? So here I'm thinking, oh, geez, everyone else has come up with these ideas, but they're not. They're spinning their wheels independently because they want to have all the answers themselves, rather than just admit maybe some of it's outside of our purview and may forever be. And I go and look, and sure enough, no, uh, the predictive engine was not missed uh, in this idea. He does say it's uh, foundational. But what I found absolutely hilarious is when you look at Douglas Hofstadter explaining um, this idea, he talks about uh, this Goethe, Gödel, Gödel, this idea of the self being um, a construct. And I chuckle because none of these guys, just like they actually mention Pyrrhonism uh, as it relates to uh, Hofstetter's theories, uh, which I find absolutely hilarious because here I thought it was just a few people, but it's obviously very common that they're obsessed with the Greek because I've mentioned this before, Pyrrhonism, this idea um, of doubt that might be this, might be that, might be both, might be neither. You may not, we might not know. You got to have, and it and it, it informs science. I've, spe I've explained this this binary idea of yes or no, right or left, uh, zero or one, leaves out um, ideas that we can't conceive of, or answers, or even questions. Right, as I've explained it before, it's this idea of. Um, uh, doubt, right? So how do you transform ignorance into wisdom? You don't. I mean, there's some belief that there's epiphanies, but again, I think it's Jung again, uh, um, maybe even Peterson, who mentions that um, it's an experience. In fact, Hofstetter talks about this. Okay, so let's go back to Hofstetter. He talks about this idea that the self is built from constructs of our preferences, right? So over time, 
we attach to this belief that this is mine. And he does, it's funny, because he does mention the idea of feelings. I've mentioned this before. The idea is to witness uh, the anger or even um, be the awareness that uh, witnesses your consciousness um, experiencing feelings. But no, truly the teaching is we, and this is Hostetter's uh, belief here, this recursive uh, feedback loop, this idea of uh, weird spirals or something, whatever he calls it, it's neither here nor there. I'm, I'm taking his idea and, and I'm infusing it with some meaning here. <laughs> I kid, I kid. But the idea is we're just attaching to these constructs. And, and I take it one step further, and I say that we can even go so far as to look at some other areas, but I won't. I, I second-guess that, and I'm not going to get into that. So he talks about this being... Uh, I've talked about this. If you're uh, familiar with technology, like a config file, a configuration file that informs an application or what have you, um, preferences. Uh, but really, there's already a word out there that we can point to. It's called the Alaya Vijnana. It's from Yogacara. I've always joked about this, that we're all studying phenomenology, uh, cognition, uh, whatever you want to call it. And the Yogacarans have been at this for, what, 1,200 years already. And there you go. There's the Amala Vijnana, the eighth consciousness, this idea of a storehouse consciousness. Storehouse consciousness. Right, that we uh, build up this preference, and we can empty this, right? Because uh, there's also the Amala Vijnana, and I actually have translated this because it's actually quite problematic. It's not present in a lot of areas. This being maybe even a ninth consciousness. So here, <laughs> pull up a chair. This is the bleeding edge of uh, science and philosophy. So in Yogacara. The Amala Vijnana, Amala being clean, like a slate wiped clean or purified, and consciousness, Vijnana. Or, if you go back and really look at the definition of Vijnana, um, and I highly recommend a website called Wisdom Lib, and it'll give you, uh, if you look at the Marathi and you can look at the Sanskrit, it's this idea of, again, a perfection, but a reality or an understanding or a cognition or a proper way of being or thinking how you comport yourself or how you actually should deal with these realities or even just the inherent truths of existence itself right vijnana this is not just consciousness but it's actually this realization itself so the amala Vijnana being a perfected consciousness, it makes us understand a little bit better what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a soul, which tends to make it problematic. What we're talking about here is the self is nascent. It's just something like upakara, something that is near about, that we use and then discard once the need is no longer, uh, you know, we're no longer required. Kind of like the Heart Sutra, Right? Para Samgate, right? Want to be on the other shore and done with this mess. Not just 
on the outside looking in, still tormented by it, but truly, truly perfected, right? This idea of what I've talked about, naroda, a cessation, a calmness, a stillness, right? So, lo and behold, right after the Hofstetter, then I go and look in Joe Rogan, right? Because it gives me a little, uh, an idea of what uh, people are talking about. I've been avoiding it lately because there's been comedians and some silliness. But he has a doctor on. He's supposed to be a clinical psychiatrist or psychologist. I can't quite remember the specifics. Um, a recent podcast talking about addiction. Lemke, I believe is her name, if I pronounce it properly. But what I found most interesting is she mentioned exactly this theory in passing, this idea of equanimity. So they're talking in relation to addiction, right? But this is the exact same thing. I argue that everything is trauma. Trauma, why? Because our mind, this predictive engine, um, is often wrong. And if the self doesn't accept that often wrong, so this is what's happened, so we're going to work with it and roll on, it can cause the trauma, right? Um, some suffering from an event. So this trauma needs to be solved. Now, do we medicate ourselves and can lead to addiction or do we accept our lot amor fati well we tend not to accept our lot and thus addictions abound and suffering abounds and all sorts of uh, Freud would love um, self uh, soothing behavior right so this doctor mentions that she would like to prove exactly what I'm working to try to prove Obviously, I guess anecdotally or just by doing, what would you call that, uh, where you pulled together all of the studies. She would like to prove, she's early days, she says, is that this is the transformational experience. Of course, they got off on a tangent in talking about people tend to take uh, extreme changes, which is, is often uh, necessary because, as Jung said, uh, you can't... Uh, you can't remove a bad habit unless you replace it with uh, with another habit. Uh, I think he said good habit, but so here they're replacing their their addiction. Arguably, once again, soothing their inability to accept the present and be in the present. They're replacing their addiction with extreme, say, uh, endurance, right? And as Mr. Rogan said, right, you're forced to be in the present. It's true. What I found funny is they, not they maybe, but Joe per, per, certainly, missed this discussion of uh, an experience of equanimity, right? So you can deal with addiction in, well, in this discussion in the two ways. You can uh, replace this um, maladaptive behavior with some other obsession that isn't quite as um, harmful. Again, the definition of addiction. It's something that, uh, you know, you continue to do in spite of the negative outcome effect. I mean, is that not the definition of dukkha or suffering or of life? We continue to do um, what we know is not uh, conducive to our happiness and yet... Right? And then the other thought is there are some people who achieve healing without this extreme, right? Because I always give Wim Hof 
and Jordan Peterson as example. Wim Hof, um, and I've been misspeaking, so I apologize, but Wim Hof lost his wife and he took to the pranayama um, and this extreme practice to soothe his behavior. And Jordan Peterson um, took to benzodiazepine and maybe, uh, and it's funny too because he says people turn things into religion and yet it looks like he's done the same with his diet and his, you know, his beliefs. Um, so self-soothing or masking behavior instead of uh, challenging the reality of the situation. In Jordan Peterson's, it was his wife's uh, illness and the stress uh, of everything he was dealing with. Extreme, obviously. But as a trained clinical psychologist, they should know that taking benzodiazepines uh, long-term is definitely not recommended, right? Especially not when it comes to trauma. Now, this was fairly early days, but for a clinical psychologist, I think this should have been well understood because of the benzodiazepines themselves, taking the most, most uh, powerful clonazepam. And as I said, if it is... In the uh, International Classifier of Disease 11, um, it was already on the radar and it was in all the publications. So this understanding of trauma was there. So it's this idea of acceptance, which is within this uh, yoga kara tradition that I've mentioned. Um, but what they missed was he was talking to Joe Rogan, and this is what started the doctor to mention her study. He mentioned he went up to, uh, what do you call them things, an observatory, and he saw the stars, and he's like, wow, that's beautiful, you know? And it really made him understand that how small he really was. And I found it beautiful because they didn't really understand this, that it's what we've been talking about, equanimity. But the doctor did mention she wanted to study this because she found this experience is transformational. But then they got, like I said, lost on a tangent about because it is not a lasting experience and still takes a tremendous amount of effort, they still go back to, well, at least they've healed somewhat, so they they uh, replace their damaging uh, habit with a, with a better habit. And in fact, the doctor mentioned that she's into hiking and such, extreme, or what do you call it, endurance sports. So I argued there's our proof. So one, I wanted to prove why I believe there's two types of microdosing. One is for creativity, which is fine. It lights up a part of the brain. We already know this. Two is for healing, particularly trauma. But honestly, now I realize that everything's trauma, and I think it would work for almost everyone. What we found is science is saying if you take a microdose when you're traumatized, and you only activate the HT1A, it can actually aggravate your anxiety. And I argue this almost proves my, my theory as well. Because the same thing can happen when you try mindfulness-based uh, cognitive behavior or um, even meditation, uh, religion I've seen as well. If you're traumatized, this can actually make these things worse. Same as treatment for um, developmental or complex trauma actually initially makes things worse before it makes it better. As you start to challenge and reprocess these memories, that's, of course, troubling. Uh, as you're learning how to manage all this and live another way. But that's why I say I think this proves my theory that um, what's really happening here, it doesn't matter whether it's a psychedelic, 
uh, if it's a religious experience, if it's a meditative experience, or even if you're up at an observatory staring up at the stars. The difference here is by activating the HD2A receptor, you get an experience of what we used to call ego death, or what I'll say is uh, an experience of, um, you know, outside of the self, right? Or like Jung uh, quotes uh, Faust saying, uh, two souls in one breast. So this is being able to look up at this sky, and then coming from the north, I can, I can attest, it is beautiful to see. Because it's it's just everywhere, right? From one quarter of the sky to the other. It's quite beautiful. Uh, it's this possibility that there may be something outside of oneself, right? So it's all the same thing. So this doctor wants to study this. That when someone experiences this out of self or um, extra self, um, uh, actually sits in a superposition is what I call, so they can look down on this storehouse consciousness and see that, oh, geez, yeah, that is just a collection of preferences. It isn't really me. This doctor wants to study this and, and see what it is about this, and I think if we combine the fact of Carl Jung's archaic man, right, in the face of something that we can't attribute a cause to. Again, in this case, when we activate the serotonin HD2A receptor, it gives us an experience of not-self or ego-death or, you know, a universal equanimity, upeksha, upeka. It's this experience itself. So as I've said before, this proves my point because in every case, be it, meditation, religious uh, rapture, fasting, vision quests, uh, sweat lodges, um, endurance running even, endurance experience, even just healing from addiction. These experiences are precipitated by the activation of the HD2A. Not because of the experience itself or uh, any compound or exogenous chemical, it's all the same. Some of them take a lot more work to experience, and therefore you've developed a new way of thinking and being and doing. So it's a little longer lasting because it's a little more earned, but at the same time, it's not that much different. In fact, even as I've developed here, if you're listening along, I originally was thinking a little bit of it is like uh, a window. But I honestly, at this point, think there is zero difference between all of these experiences. I think in no small part, we may one day find that it's not what we do or what we take. It's just simply in the activation. If we were able to, in some way, just activate the HT2A receptor, we might see this for a fact. And, uh, yeah, how we prove this, obviously, is uh, is really uh, the next question. I think what's harming us more than anything else is um, so many people don't want this to be true, right? I mean, uh, religion obviously wants to be... Um, 
the only one to have this special connection. I mean, uh, traditional native, I mean, let's be honest, they want it to be um, something special, same as meditation. Uh, science wants to have uh, the answer, an exclusive answer. I think uh, nobody's invested in the idea that we're all going after the exact same thing, right? And the healing is of a trauma-based experience, right? So it doesn't matter what that experience was. We've seen this with trauma. Two people can go through the exact same experience and come out um, completely different, impacted completely different. So that's that idea of, right, Friston or Hofstetter, this idea that the self is just a collection of preferences, right? And our experience is reality if we truly expect, uh, accept, right, the cause and effect of our choices and all this jazz, but we also are in the present. So we can see this. We can see it's like, oh, yeah, see, mental illness might be uh, not accepting of the reality or your circumstances. We can see them, well, meditation is, uh, you know, calming the uh, um, brain waves or it's uh, bringing in control, you're uh, parasympathetic, you're breathing, it's this, pranayama is that, it's yoga is that. Instead of stopping and going, well, geez, it's all doing the exact same thing. Just whether we are doing what we're supposed to. I mean, look at yoga. Yoga, you should be breathing and you should be moving and you should be concentrating, meditating. And if you're not doing all of them, you're not going to get the full uh, benefit and experience. The same can be said about meditation. I mean, I've often argued that not taking it off uh, the mat is a problem, but even sitting on the mat and, and, uh, and uh, having issues with uh, wanting attainment, or losing attainment, or even the thing that drove me to question uh, so many teachers was um, these uh, adverse experiences. So, again, it shocked me to see how little discussion of trauma when I feel it all boils down to this simple thing, because they even talked about this. Uh, all of these individuals talking about these issues is that there is a certain amount of shock in the experience itself. So that's why I mentioned my own equanimity experience as a young lad and might even form some of my other experiences, either meditative or entheogenic, that I was always resident in an understanding of what the self and the nature of reality might be. And be that a doubt so, and that's what I always equated it to, is having this tremendous amount of doubt, not in a negative way, but when you see your senses trying to trick you, and you doubt, then you have no problem with some of these psychedelics, right? It didn't bother me seeing traces, not like I thought my skin was melting or something like that. I just understood that, oh, isn't that cool, that... My sense of perceptions can be that fooled, right? And so that might be another angle of the psychedelics, right? Somebody who isn't so traumatized, so distanced from their somatic experience that by just simply taking these compounds, they're able to experience this shift of perception, right?
And as I've said before, I believe that we need to develop this language of perception. And that's what I've been doing these past few months. Didn't realize that what I was actually doing was learning a language of feeling and perception, allowing me to actually achieve some insight. And I know it sounds crazy. No, I just mean that I'd never been able to stop and actually think about some of these little things. Like actually be able to, instead of regurgitate what, say, maybe this doctor was talking about. He's like, oh, I want to study about this. And it actually made me realize that, oh, geez, I'm not the only one that's been wondering about this. And possibly maybe am I further along in my understanding because I'm not biased by either, uh, either camp. Right? I'm not a, uh, in the religious camp or the, the science camp. Like the way the Greeks kind of maybe began this schism, certainly in the West. So is that maybe the problem that Right? Science has no room for doubt because that's, that's the, uh, the space for religion. When in reality, some of our greatest advances came from people who had great doubt over many things that at the time were certain. So there's a little food for thought. Right? So many of us might be spinning our wheels, as Hofstetter might say. Right? Not because we don't maybe have access to the answers or or maybe we might not even understand that we already have the answers. Kind of like this idea that we already have Buddha nature. Right? So you already have the answers. Your only issue is you haven't been able to integrate. Right? Think of it as four separate jigsaw puzzles. If your answers require you to understand science, faith, and all the experience of the human being so irrational and so absurd even, you think of this understanding as, well, I have all of the pieces. You have all four puzzles and you have each and every piece But what you don't realize is you need to take all four of those puzzles. And together, they form a map. Without it, you're always going to find yourself stuck at a precipice at the end of, of your known territory, your understood experience and what you need to do is push yourself beyond that because insight comes from being uncomfortable as i've quoted before this idea that if we aren't constantly learning and growing and working then you're you're atrophying you're 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 shrinking you're losing right embrace this opportunity that sort of idea So take all of the information and you need to put it together. It may even fit in a weird, uh, unnatural shape. But once you've put it together, that's when you can step back and look. And then, then, and I argue, that's where this weird, crazy, wonderful power of the human mind comes in. 
if the world is chaos, if the world is what entropy, uh, all of these fancy words meaning, you know, there is no rhyme or reason to it. But we have the human mind who looks for faces in tree bark. I mean, we look for pattern in the chaos. So that's when we can step back and we can see within this perceived chaos a way forward. So I'll leave it at that before it gets to another 39 minutes. So have a wonderful day.